The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or Congresswoman Joyce Beatty. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the July 20th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. For the full hour, my guest is rising junior University High School student, Ania Shen, to talk about how she's been genuinely building a love of science and literature as an individual and as part of a group. Let's start the interview now. My guest is Ania Shen. She's a product of this very town, Irvine, and an incoming junior at University High School at uni. She's co-president of Science Club and co-captain of the Science Olympiad team. We'll talk about her many veteran years with that group. She also conducts research and placed fourth in the Earth and Environmental Sciences category at the Regeneron International Science and Engineering Fair this year. Outside of the sciences, Ania is an avid writer and passionate about how literature and poetry can help us develop empathy and critical thinking skills. That is going to be a big part of what we want to talk about today. Ania hopes to pursue an interdisciplinary path to bridge her interests and advocate the merging of science and art in everyday life. She comes to us today from her home in Irvine. A warm welcome to you, Ania Shen, to Ask a Leader. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and talk with you all about everything I've been up to and some of my thoughts on the things that Claudia covered in the intro. Yes, and it's several paths that are an extraordinary kind of an example that for all families, especially in this particular culture of education that is in Irvine Unified School District, this is an amazing opportunity that I have. And a shout out to Patricia Goheen in the University Hills neighborhood, who was kind enough to introduce me to Ania and all of the gifts Ania is going to bring to us. So we're talking about weaving so many things. Let's start with your middle school kinds of undertakings, including the science club and the Olympiad at that time. When you learned, when you're putting all these talents together, what talk about some of your activities that were baking in some of these amazing talents that you have, Ania. Sure. So actually middle school, I would, looking back, middle school was kind of almost like a period of time where I really had the space and kind of the time to explore some of these interests and also kind of a time when I felt like I had the most self-confidence or like assurance in kind of what I wanted to do. And I'll go more into that, but Um, Yeah, so going in from elementary school, I knew that there was something called Science Olympiad. And for those who are unfamiliar, um, Science Olympiad is a team competition. So there's 23 events spanning a huge range of science, uh, everything from life sciences and biology to oceanography and atmospheric sciences, physics, chemistry, uh, construction. So it's really covering a broad range of topics. And there's 15 people on each team. And then each person covers everywhere from two to five events. So for example, I'm mostly interested in biology and biochemistry. 
So I cover events like anatomy and physiology or a designer genes, which is just like a molecular genetics event. So I went into middle school hoping to participate, but I found that for whatever reason, my middle school had discontinued the program there. Um, so I was really disappointed, but I- Was that Rancho? Yes, that was Rancho San Joaquin Middle School. And uh, so my seventh grade year, they actually didn't have the Science Olympiad program. Of course, I was very disappointed, but I continued to explore my interests in biology um, by taking a class outside of school and really just fell in love with how biology helped me understand kind of the science behind the natural phenomenon I was really interested in and still find very fascinating. Um, but I was really lucky because my eighth grade year, there was a new teacher um, who came to Rancho and he decided to start up the Science Olympiad program. And so that was my first experience with Science Olympiad. And that year was really, really amazing because we were this group of like 20 or so middle schoolers with a new teacher and we were like unfamiliar with Science Olympiad, but uh, so we struggled a lot through the process, but we also became really close as a team and a community. And I just love the experience so much, even though we didn't really place really well as a team at the competitions and such. Um, we, I think it was really great because we just got a good experience together. And that led to a lot of us continuing with it in high school. I'd like to take a moment. There was the intangible benefit that you didn't make the competition in that Olympiad, that stretch in eighth grade, but I want to let you speak a little bit more to what the team building and the what those learning experiences were that you're alluding to. I think that's one of those intangible life skills that get missed. And this is a great time for you to talk about that more deeply. Yes, yes. So yeah, the whole thing with external validation and internal validation and motivation, um, that I think was something that I experienced through Science Olympiad. Um, so like I said, we were this group of inexperienced kind of uh, middle schoolers with a new teacher. And so, you know, going in, we really didn't know what to expect. Like, for example, my best friend was also on the team and she, you know, she'd been interested in science, but she didn't really like pursue it um, that much um, like I did outside of school. Uh, but like she took on new events um, in Dynamic Planet, which is more kind of physical and geological sciences. And she ended up really liking that. Um, also with construction, we had a group of students who were very into building and construction. They had a lot of passion projects out, outside of school with just building like bridges and things, which came in handy because one of the build events is constructing a boom lever um, to see like how much weight it can hold. But I remember like my friend would tell me he would drive with his mom all the way out to Hobby Lobby in order to buy all the materials. And, you know, to this day, I think we have like kind of the different stages of the boom lever construction on the walls in, in the classroom. <laughs> so even though we didn't place very well as a team that first year, I don't think any of us really stressed about that. It was all just 
about being together at the competitions. Science Olympiad competitions are very fun. Um, they're like huge events too, because it's a national organization. And so there's like invitational, uh, regional level, county level, and then state and of, of course national. Um, yeah. So while you're making all of these choices, talk about the kind of autonomy you had in making them. Was this something you were, I mean, you talk about external, internal kinds of validations, but were, were there people in your family saying, you know, you ought to pursue this, or were you the curious and formidable kind of pursuer yourself? Uh, I think it's definitely a mix. Um, so especially with like science and math, both my parents work in STEM fields and you know, it wasn't like from a young age, they were pushing me like, oh, you have to go into science. But I think kind of naturally, like, whatever parents are interested in, they introduce their children to them kind of early on. So I was exposed to that kind of analytical thinking and curiosity from a young age. Uh, but I, I really took and ran with it independently, I would say. Um, they didn't like force me to take a biology class or anything. I just wanted to, because I thought it was interesting. And that's actually where I also want to talk about my love for literature and the- We will, we will, we'll get to that. I still want to stay in this particular area. And the kind of culture that you are raised in, mm -hmm. include the family as well as at the, the school campus, domain is I just like to know if you have a, a reaction to the kind of uneven science literacy that we read and hear about we're exposed about around the country as things like pandemics and climate crises are rolling out some huge challenges for society to answer what how do you feel about the the sort of the black holes of science literacy when we're exposed to them yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, um, I think that like, you know, it, it's good that there's news outlets that kind of take these weighty topics like pandemics and climate change and express them to the general public in different groups in a way that's understandable. Uh, but I also think that just getting your scientific information from a news source is isn't really that deep. Um, so I think that that's why like, I don't like it when people kind of say, well, um, if you know, if you're into science, you're, you have to be like really into it in order to understand everything and um, kind of like that. I think that everyday people should, you know, be interested in science and learning more about that. Science literacy, yes. So I'm kind of lucky because like my parents and our friends, they are all pretty deep into the sciences. So, you know, I think that kind of level of scientific literacy is, is pretty good. But at the same time, I think that there's too much of a gap almost uh, in society. Like you have some people who are really into science and kind of understanding that. And then some people are just not that interested or, distracted or apathetic. Um, and so, you know, how can we spread science literacy and make that more accessible to people? That's definitely something that we should be considering. 
And the, those kinds of uh, defaults that were raised in that sort of can be stifling that I, I heard an interesting sort of a segment on the marketplace where mm -hmm. it was a student looking back on her upbringing. She just couldn't get started with college. She couldn't, she kept running up loans and things like that. I mean, the stakes were getting higher and higher, but, but she realized she was pursuing what her parents were involved with in social sciences. And she learned later on that she really was a STEM student and she learned she was really good at coding. So it's sort of, it's interesting what the cultures they can give it, sort of take it away. But, but she then found the science in her uh, taking time off and learned, uh, it, it was something that could break through and give her a window on the world, but it suited you to have your parents cultivating this kind of vocation and that you picked up on that. But it's sort of like, how do we reach the Aeneas out there who are in a different kind of culture? And that's, a, it's something I guess we all need to sort of be aware of and be ready if there's a way we can just, because it was somebody that suggested this person, why don't you try something else? Why don't you try that? For those of you who just joined us, my guest is Ania Shen, University High School, soon to be junior on some very compelling paths for consideration. We're talking about science literacy and her formative middle school career in the Olympiad and some other kinds of competitions and team building. So anything more you wanna say about now the culture of the students um, the, among you in middle school and what you learned in that team building before we go on to the literary projects. Yes, so in middle school, of course, it's the pond is a lot smaller. And I think what I like about middle school is how everybody kind of knows each other better or there's not so much of that diverging of interests and specialization that tends to happen later on in high school. So in that environment, for example, like in ASB, uh, we had a really diverse group of people who are interested in science, like myself, and also people who are athletes, um, artists, musicians. And actually, we came together and we made this mural project to kind of symbolize that explosion of different interests in the same place. So in ASB, I designed and painted a mural uh, with my friend Hannah, who is a lot more into kind of arts and the creative path, of course. And our mural was called Create-A-Lies. So half of it is kind of about the academics and the STEM. And so we, we drew like pictures of a circuit board and equations and things like that. And on the right side of the mural, it's this like very colorful splash of arts and music and sports. And then, you know, kind of left side of the brain, right side of the brain, and then they converge in the center. Um, so like, I think, that project, which remains a project that I'm really proud of and have some great memories of, that kind of captured the student interactions in middle school, at least that my friends and me felt a part of. Like we had very diverse interests, but we influenced each other positively and introduced each other to different areas of our inner lives and our kind of outer pursuits as well. So I guess, was it conscious that you may have realized that the sum of your collective parts were greater than the sum of you as individuals. Yes, definitely, I think. And of course, that understanding, 
I think becomes more profound when you go to like high school or college where you have an even bigger community and communities within the, the bigger community. Uh, but I think in middle school, like having an exposure to that from a young age uh, is definitely important. And Ania, it was it conscious that among all of you, did you all register that? Or sometimes, sometimes something that extraordinary maybe isn't, we're not aware of it at the time, that gift. Yes, yes. Um, it, it's, it's curious because, you know, looking back or thinking in retrospect, um, I think we tend to realize larger truths because in the moment we're kind of just living it. Um, but also like, I think if we look back and sometimes we can tend to romanticize or maybe attribute meaning where there wasn't that much, but it's, it's a balance. Um, and I think like now looking back, we're all more appreciative, but then we also realize, well, in high school, you know, we're, we're living like another instance at an even more profound scale probably. And so we should kind of try to become more conscious of that. Well, it, it does take a great deal of presence of mind though to, to realize all these things are happening and let us not any of us forget that this is an adolescent social and uh, intellectual person building here and that just the flood of all the just developmental issues going on with all that so it's it's a tall order to keep track of all that and some of yeah. us don't catch on till decades later I'm here to attest so well let's talk then about where your formative writing your poetry and your literature that you're involved in now where that started in middle school yeah I will actually want to take us back a little more to elementary school. And I'm really excited to talk about this because I think it connects to what we were discussing about um, kind of if you're not surrounded in a certain culture and you, you know, maybe you're interested in something else and like that. So, you know, as a young child, I, I love to read. Of course, my, my father actually also loves to read although he doesn't have that much time to do leisure reading now. Um, but I was greatly influenced by that. And I think in elementary school, I had some really good teachers, Mrs. Goheen being one of them. Uh, and my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Naramore and Mr. Tobankin, my fifth grade teacher. And in their classrooms, they really cultivated, like they consciously tried to introduce art and literature and poetry into our classes. So in fourth grade, every week we had one class dedicated to art and we would make a different art project every week. And then with Mrs. Goheen's class, we would write narratives and personal essays and we would read books like The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak, um, which is beautiful and his prose is like prose poetry to me. Um, and so starting there, I really started to develop an independent passion for literature and poetry that I think I've been pursuing pretty autonomously uh, in terms of how much my parents influenced me and how much they kind of understand about it. Um, but then in middle school, I think, like I mentioned with the mural project, this just deepening those interests. Um, and then, um, so yeah, elementary and middle school, um, built that foundation. And it was also when I started, because I think when you're younger, your dreams or your ideals of who you might become and what you might do, they're a lot less affected by, you know, 
external um, thoughts or kind of more practical considerations. So for a while in sixth grade, I was actually contemplating like becoming a writer or I really wanted to become a writer and like keep pursuing that. And so I think in high school and even now, it's just still, of course, developing these interests and learning how to balance them and how I don't have to, you know, pursue one or the other in the future, I can bridge them and keep doing both. And I think that's something that I'm really passionate about. Very good. So when you started high school, then let's talk about some of the projects, some, there's some very specific ones that you've, uh, you're developing a lawn watering gauge. That's my shorthand, but you have a, a better, uh, your own way of talking about that kind of work you're doing. And Professor Michelle Digman is the engineering professor, I think that you're associated with in that project. Yes, she's the biomedical engineering professor and uh, my PI. So talk about that project. What started you on that? And I, it's a work in progress, as I understand, but what, uh, what you're finding out? And is there a collaboration with, are they with the university students or with the university high students or with whom? Yeah, so actually um, this project started in the pandemic. So last year and during the pandemic, um, there's this community park in my neighborhood that I pretty much grew up in and it inspired me so much. I wrote a personal essay about it, um, but I started to notice on my daily walks to the park how there would just be water running down the sidewalks every morning um, due to overwatering. And there were clearly pockets of the grassy fields that were overwatered with like sunken roots and hardscape damage. Uh, and I started to realize that you know, why, why isn't there something being done about this? Um, and then my parents considered replacing our own lawn with artificial grass because of the drought and just saving water. And I love nature and that just kind of shocked me because I didn't realize I'd been taking for granted, you know, just my lawn and being so close to an element of nature every day. And so I realized that there isn't really a widely accessible tool for ordinary people to assess grass water use efficiency. So I decided why not see if I could do something with this in my project. And I had been interning in Professor Digman's lab um, before the pandemic, but starting during the pandemic, I was playing around with some home experiments with paper chromatography and building this imaging box because in the lab, uh, we have these really cool microscopes. And so I was trying to recreate elements of that at home. And so my wonderful mentor, Francesco Palumba, uh, a postdoc in the lab, we were like, why don't we, you know, take these elements that we've developed at home and gear them towards this grass watering project. So our project ended up developing and testing a method um, that combines smartphone imaging with this software analysis using ImageJ, which is simply a software uh, used in quite a, a lot of scientific fields to analyze images. And I'm not sure if I should go into like details behind the, this, the project itself, but basically right now I'm trying to develop this application um, by making an app hopefully that ordinary people can download and 
they can simply image their lawn or their grass and then input their an estimation of their water usage and then the app will tell them, oh, you're overwatering or you're underwatering or um, here's a suggestion on how you can better save water while still preserving your lawn quality. And so there's a couple of things that your talents can address, can contribute to that you're able to take your writing and your designing of this app that you can sort of figure out how to reach different kinds of users to make it an accessible application. Yes, for sure. So, you know, the whole point of the project was to create something that would be more accessible and have a direct broader impact on the local community. And so once I developed this app or this application, um, then comes the point of, you know, spreading the news or um, sharing kind of maybe some of the science behind it. Again, kind of bringing the science and the science literacy to more people, you know, contacting, starting with friends and family, maybe expanding from there using the school newspaper or, you know, a local station like this one and, you know, giving this application to more people. Excellent. And so, is this some kind of a project that can also become a kind of a university high school science kind of a, 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 a job as well? I mean, this, this could be an assignment that goes slide right into what's going on there. Or do you feel like you've got to keep developing uh, some new projects just to keep breaking ground and open up opportunities to see what kinds of fits are the best for you? How does that work, that decision-making? Yes, yeah, so with this project, um, I actually haven't considered like bringing it to the high school or curriculum. Um, right now, I'm just trying to keep analyzing data and better calibrate this app or this application. But I think that, you know, in like AP biology, for example, ecology unit, when we're studying the water cycle or water resources and ecosystems, we can definitely kind of tie this in and, you know, maybe have some students um, try out this application and give their user feedback, which is always important with applications um, and kind of see what, if they want to take a similar idea and develop it according to that. Um, and then right now I'm actually working on another project in the lab um, where we just actually just got into the lab a couple days ago. Um, now that the pandemic is, you know, kind of, of course it's evolving and uh, we don't know what's going to happen concretely, but um, thankfully I can go back into the lab now and working on another project, hopefully with like wound healing. So definitely still exploring different areas and trying to see which ones kind of fit or, you know, like when I was going into the lab, um, I was hoping to do more like biomedical or biochemistry research. And then because of the pandemic, I kind of shifted to earth and environment sciences, which is more closer to us in our everyday lives, I think. And that's one thing that I love about research and science. It's you can explore these different areas and apply the same analytical skills or curiosity and explore things that you didn't expect to explore, 
create projects and products based on where your your research takes you and that fluid nature of research is something I don't think I really grasped until I had to do this home project so I'm still going along with that and trying a new like a different project and learning always learning more and seeing where I want to go with this. Ania, I just want to point out how extraordinary it is. I'm going to remind people, Ania is a soon-to-be junior, so listen to this sophistication she's approaching her work and her contributions with. It's just extraordinary. But I want to, I want to have you think out loud with us, for us, how developing, getting a, a really early start in your applying your scientific methods and designing and building and tinkering with all this, if it's giving you the presence of mind to think critically at you know deeper and deeper levels, where I think sometimes people that are working on a superficial level of just like checking boxes so they can get into college and get into the, the perfect college, that your critical thinking is giving you an ability to see maybe what are the limits of some conventional thinking. And you can be really much more enterprising, much more longer term thinking about what kinds of things you're designing, the kinds of impacts they have and the uh, uh, capacity of those designs to solve these real world problems that you're talking about. I mean, I, I think your critical thinking is getting a head start. I wanna acknowledge that and have you talk about how aware of building critical thinking gives a special kind of insight about questioning the things, the conventions that you're going to be keep, you're, you'll continue to face as you become a, a university student. Yes. So I guess I can start kind of where you started. So with the whole idea of checking boxes or building this greater awareness, this um, longer term perspective. Um, so I think especially with kind of how the Irvine mentality, so to speak, has developed. I think that's a struggle that a lot a lot of students, like my peers and my friends, even my younger brother, um, I see increasingly kind of, it's something that I care deeply about. Um, like there's this tremendous pressure almost externally from different sources and maybe the culture, the mentality, the status quo kind of, you know, what, what's the end goal to all this? Is it just to get into a good college or um, like, an, you know, or, or do you really want to take this and take this to, to university and continue developing and what is your longer term plan? Um, and I struggled with this for quite a long time. And sometimes I do still struggle with it, this balancing of what I hope to achieve and what my longer term plans are and then kind of the immediate, you know, milestones. Um, and I guess how I developed the greater awareness, I, I guess part of it is watching my younger brother or just the people around me. Um, my younger brother is growing up in Irvine. I think that is pretty different from the one I grew up in, or maybe that's just because our family's awareness of different parts of Irvine has expanded and that's kind of shaped, you know, um, parenting or education within our own household, but kind of just watching other people struggle with this and, you know, my peers and I discussing these kinds of things, that's really what's given me, 
I would hope more awareness about this kind of stuff about these things. And then, yeah, like I think it's really important long-term if you start building this awareness and, you know, even if I'm aware that I'm, I'm very young and there's so much more that I have to learn and experience, but, you know, just building that awareness and that mindset that you should always be kind of looking further out and what, what's the bigger picture, you know, um, and knowing when you need to kind of rebalance yourself or kind of check back with yourself. Like, is, is this path really what I want to do? Or um, it, well, why am I doing this? Am I just doing this so that my resume looks better? Or am I doing this because I really feel passionate about it and what I can do with it? And, you know, that ties into critical thinking. And of course, that will come into play later on when we all have our careers and what we're doing with our lives, what we're building with our lives and our careers, like making sure that this translates over and we're not just, you know, doing work in order to achieve superficial or kind of external validation again, like money or fame or um, these kinds of things. And I think just reflecting a lot um, and again, literature and uh, brain pickings, which is one of my favorite websites, um, having these sources of kind of meditation and um, larger awareness has really helped me um, both balance that individually and mentally and emotionally, um, and also just in the long term. Well, thank you for that. And you mentioned brain pickings. And in preparation for this interview, Ania, you talked about that is a, an element in your creative life. Talk about how you found brain pickings. I've, I've heard of Maria Papova in the, the founder in the past, but I'm, I've not participated in brain pickings myself. So how did you find it? And have you contributed to that platform yourself? And more about what this means to you. Yes, so actually uh, I found brain pickings by accident. I think that's one of the good things about the internet, kind of you can find a lot of interesting things. Um, so actually I went through a period where I was quite into Joan Didion as a writer. Um, I read a lot of her essays and I was just kind of, I, I was kind of obsessed for a while with her writing and her prose. And so she wrote this um, piece on, on New York and remembering who she was. And so I was just looking on the internet, um, kind of like different writers' perspectives on New York because, you know, living in the suburbs, um, <laughs> I'm aware that, <laughs> New York, I think for a lot of people, it's always been this symbolic or kind of romanticized or very nebulous concept almost. Um, so, I, you know, I was also kind of curious about that. And I found this brain pickings piece um, titled, I think, like different writers on New York. And it was just this compilation of a lot of different writers, um, diary entries or essays um, about New York and how, what it means to them and how that evolves over time. And so that's how I found brain pickings. And I quickly realized that brain pickings is like my favorite internet rabbit hole because it, there's just so many cool articles on there. And every time I go into that site, I have to spend like a couple hours just, just kind of reading and realizing <laughs> the, the like creativity and just 
it's really hard to word, um, but please check it out if, if you haven't already. It's a great site. Um, and so, like I mentioned, things like brain pickings has been an anchor to me almost um, in navigating just like the um, struggles of balance and, um, you know, what's, what's the why behind what I'm doing. Um, so if you look at brain pickings in Maria Popova, she kind of describes her site as um, taking old, like historical um, and past wisdom, timeless wisdom from poets and writers, um, philosophers and ancient scientists, and then putting them together in interesting ways and um, portraying and giving them to people in this new internet digitalized platform, um, which is, I think, just something really cool and something that you know, I, I think I really align with that. Um, and so she has like this newsletter, week, Sunday newsletter, and um, every Sunday it's like this little slice of meditation and calm coming into my inbox. And um, I don't always have time to really read through everything in the newsletter, but anytime I'm feeling kind of stressed out or um, lost about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, I go back to that site and read through some of the articles and just gain it really fosters a greater perspective because you're you know she she includes like pictures of you know like Galileo's notebooks or it, it really spans a lot of time and just helps you it makes you feel small and I'm always struck by how much I will never know because in one lifetime you can't possibly like experience every meaningful thing but then I realize each of these people or each of these articles, it captures some snapshot of the human experience. And it, it took that person like a lifetime to realize that. And, and that's okay. Um, so yeah, I just really love that website. And it's kind of like my safe haven, so to speak. Ania, you, before you were talking in depth, you talked about what got you to brain pickings. You mentioned Joan Didion. How did a high school student find Joe Didion. And I know when you read Joe Didion 20, 30 years from now, you're gonna pick up, I'm just, just here to say, you'll pick up on some material that didn't quite, you didn't pick up on now, but how did you have the presence of mind to open her up and, and meditate on her musings? Cause she's, she's extraordinary. How did you find her? Yes, yeah, so I actually, I take this like writing class or language class with this teacher outside of um, school and his name is Bruce Smith. Um, and he's really passionate about education and um, learning and trying different systems of education from around the world. So like with my class, we kind of tried um, the English ministerial exam this past year and also the, the French exam from Quebec, which is like four hours long um, writing exam and really allows you to go into depth uh, with your writing, which I find is is really a, a nice change of pace from like the AP essays, which are like 40 minutes back-to-back -back essays. So in his class for one of our units, we were studying um, essays. And there's this book called 25 Great Essays by Robert Diani, um, which is really cool. It's this anthology. And one of the, the pieces we read was by Joan Didion. Um, it was about like getting married in Las Vegas and kind of the satirical perspective on that. And 
I really struggled with that piece um, because for some reason with satire, I've always found it to take a lot more of my conscious effort trying to understand and digest it. But I just really, I was fascinated by her prose and her image. Um, and so I started just exploring her and like year of magical thinking and why I keep a notebook, um, her personal essays, and then that one about New York. Um, I just really like her prose. I, it, it's, it's very, very, I don't know how to word it, but yeah, like, like you said, um, for sure, it, once, when I come back and read her later on, um, I will find different things. Actually, I, I kind of experienced that with Great Expectations um, by Charles Dickens. That was the first classic novel I read. And I really, that's my favorite book as of now, actually. And I've gone back to reread it once a year since then. So I've reread it like four times now. And every time I just find that the story means something different to me. Like when I first started, I thought that the protagonist reminded me almost of myself, like this very sensitive um, child, um, you know, kind of striving for his expectations and um, chasing status or social class and then going back and realizing um, that what matters most in life is your family and your friends and your relationships. And then now when I go back and read it, I really see my younger brother in Pip, um, the protagonist. And so that just takes on a whole different meaning for me now. So yeah, that's part of why I love literature and the meaning is it, it shifts and it changes depending on your mood or, you know, what you're currently experiencing or what you've gone through. And yeah, just. And what a gift that you also, in your insight, you talk about the complexity of satire. And it's not only like in the example of Joan Didion, who is a very bi-coastal writer. She, you know, she's got the snark coming. She can tap into the West Coast scene versus the the Big Apple, and there's those elements. And then, and that I noticed on Twitter how difficult it is for people to understand that, in fact, what they're in a thread, there may be, it may be pure satire. And it, it's a very complex kind of a, we'll call it a genre. And so you're giving us the heads up, you're learning early. And I, I want to suggest something because I'm, I'm concerned, Ania, when you are completing your college applications. Somebody's got to put a huge asterisk there. This is Ania talking. She's been talking like this all the time. This is not her parents completing the paperwork. This is her own statement. Enjoy it, applicant reviewers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with reviewing applications, it's always kind of like this tricky balance because um, you're reading these words or you're seeing these achievements through this paper and trying to get a feel for the individual behind it. Um, but that's why I think with like interviews, like college interviews or, um, you know, like really meeting the person, interacting with them, I think that's the best way to really get to know someone because, I mean, unless the person um, like memorizes everything they want to say beforehand, then that's different, but yeah. Oh, you can't possibly memorize an interview. It always, it'll come out as a uh, sort of robotic regurgitation of some kind of material. So that would definitely be, I think, your best insurance policy to assure the applicant reviewer that what insight you bring is genuinely 
you. So you didn't get a chance to fully talk about the kind of Olympiad you're as a high school student, you've been coaching middle schoolers on the Olympiad. Talk about that experience, Ania. Yes, gladly. So um, like I mentioned, when in eighth grade, we had a really kind of crazy year of figuring out how this worked and um, how to compete. And so I had such a great experience with Science Olympiad and I'm continuing with it in high school that I thought that I had to go back and, and help out, you know, like mentor these young kids and, and give them an experience that I had and that really shaped where I wanted to, to go. Um, so I initiated this coaching committee of like-minded uni high students and we worked very closely with the coach to sustain Rancho Science Olympiad, especially last year during the pandemic. Uh, it was quite challenging for everybody in Science Olympiad and of course, just everybody in general. But so through that, you know, like I I've always loved kids and helping other people and mentoring other people. Um, and that really, it's an honor to be able to have that kind of influence on younger kids. Um, so I, I try like with my lectures and just guiding them to really help them not just learn their events and the knowledge, but really connect it to the greater implications and start kind of helping them build their own awareness. Like in Heredity, which is one of the events and one of my favorite, um, it's about genetics. And so when I'm talking about like the genetic code and how that works, I also want to bring in discussions about CRISPR-Cas9 and gene editing and biotechnology, these kind of current pressing innovations and directions that are going to have direct impacts on their lives and just society in general and really getting them to see, you know, you're not just studying this event because you want to get a gold medal at the next competition. And even if you don't, this knowledge, this science literacy that you're building and this awareness of how things work, that's going to benefit you and allow you to partake in these conversations that are really crucial. And you can see them getting that. I mean, talk about your understanding that you're reaching them. That's got to be like that. Yes. The, the nugget of your experience. Yes. I mean, you know, lecturing through Zoom is a very weird experience. Um, a lot of them, you know, they're really shy. So they keep their cameras off. And I'm just talking to like a box, but I try to pull them into conversation. And Mrs. Goheen and I were discussing this over email and um, how, you know, difficult it was as the pandemic progressed to, to get kids to participate, like in discussions and get them to just be engaged in learning. But, you know, it was a process. Like, I found that as I built more trust with the students and they saw that I was genuinely trying to help them and guide them, you know, they started to kind of show that I was getting to them and reaching them. Um, I'm really happy to hear that a lot of them hope to continue with Science Olympiad and, um, or they just are, you know, want to explore a different area of science or something. Um, and then, you know, they write me, wrote me like thank you letters and saying that they kind of got a better, you know, understanding of Science Olympiad beyond just the competition and the awards and stuff. So that that meant a lot to me as kind of a, a young coach, I suppose. Well, congratulations on that major feat and, uh, and gratitude for your being so generous with your talents and especially with 
surmounting that massive obstacle of talking Zoom box to Zoom box, I, I just can't imagine the presence of mind it takes to overcome those kinds of barriers for sure. So thanks and congratulations. <laughs> and so another thought that occurs to me, Anil, while we're together for the full hour. So you've probably heard about when students, when they're pushed too hard, when they're not taking it on organically, like it seems that you've been doing over the last six to eight to more years, that they burn out. There's a huge sort of backlash. There's a drop off the edge. So are you aware of some cases of your peers, your elder students in your community, that when they were pushed, it didn't go out so well? Do you think about that as how to keep your pace, how to keep balance? Definitely. That's a huge thing. And I'm I really care a lot about that. And I think about it a lot. Um, yeah, burnout. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a problem. And like, I've seen a lot of some of my, um, my elders, like, actually, my role models, one of them, for example, she did amazing research with machine learning and, like, helping people sleep better. And actually, her research is now, I think, clinically used, which is amazing. Um, I just remember, like, although I didn't witness it firsthand, but I, I kind of heard how um, she really struggled and her sister as well um, with burnout and just dealing with expectations and, and things like that. And now witnessing some of my own peers, um, for sure, there are parents who push their children kind of more than is necessary and is healthy. That's part of why it's good to have a, like a student community where you can validate each other and make sure everything's okay with each other. Like, of course, I do think though that the parent-child relationship, it, it's, it's definitely very crucial and you shouldn't just rely on your peers, um, no matter how inspiring or like-minded they may be. Um, actually, for a period of time, um, I actually experienced like burnout myself, I would think. When was that? Uh, Actually, it was, I would say it was the transition into to high school. I had a pretty rough transition, actually. Um, like I said, middle school was kind of my height of self-confidence and self-assurance and, you know, going into high school and being hit with the pressure at first of college and classes and all of that stuff. Um, that was really tough for me and for a while I was almost even resentful towards my parents because I couldn't like we weren't really communicating well and I just felt like we weren't aligned or I, I didn't know kind of why they were asking me to, to do certain things but but then over time I repaired that relationship especially with my mom I would think and now we're best friends and I can kind of understand where they were coming from and they can better understand like my convictions and my, my, my boundaries, I suppose, and kind of recovering from that. So maintaining balance itself is, is a balancing act in terms of how you go about it. Exercise, sleeping. Um, I think there's this habit of like trying to sleep late and then, you know, like that doesn't mean you're being productive, but you know, that's, I, I noticed that sometimes uh, within my peer groups, like 
people trying to say like, well, I slept later. Um, It's quite unhealthy, but I think, you know, the fact that you're going through it with other people and even if you mess up, you, you mess up together and you can learn together, hopefully, and help each other. I think that, you know, it's, it's a process. I wouldn't say, I'm sure like I may experience burnout again or witness more people who will experience it. I think, especially in the pandemic, a lot of people, um, frontline workers, um, healthcare professionals, you know, even the everyday person at, stuck at home, just it, burnout and maintaining this energy and this balance has been really challenging, so. Well, to use a metaphor and adapt it here for the situation, there, we talk about a perfect storm where there is an utter collapse and a catastrophe that there, it seems like intergenerationally in the Shen family, there was a perfect reckoning where between your parents and you, you came to an understanding that got you onto, but all of the family members onto a healthier path and you, you made it, you solved it. Yes, I would, I would hope so. I was lucky enough, I guess, because um, I've always been kind of more independent and mature um, just because of a period of time when I was in like fourth grade due to the, the 2008 recession, we had some tough times and that period kind of made me become more aware of like my family's um, needs and my parents' struggles. And then from there, I was able to cultivate a better understanding and empathy towards them and other people. Um, But like, I guess this perfect reckoning, so to speak, like it does, you know, I'm glad that it happened, but I also realized that there's a lot of families out there, a lot of kids, especially in my demographic and this community, you know, that don't have that kind of relationship with their parents. And I think it's, it's something that we can address. Um, And even now, just looking at my own younger brother, and I mean, we are like polar opposites, I would say, and sometimes I worry for him, because he doesn't seem to be, to be grasping onto that awareness. And, you know, I try as, as a sister to, to try to influence him positively, but I also realized that he kind of has to experience his own path in order to, to learn things sometimes the hard way. Um, but I would really hope to any parents and students out there listening, um, you know, take the time, you know, before you go out and, and impact other people and uh, impact like, you know, do service, make sure you impact your family and and talk to your parents and learn their stories and, and, and try to, you know, keep that relationship strong because it, it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that your brother's probably finding you a, a tough act to follow. So it's a, <laughs> certainly the second born, the, the other siblings, it's their job description to be sort of oppositional or differentiating themselves from that. So that, that's a classic sort of a, a challenge to everybody. So I'd like to make the final question about returning to school. It's a kind of an above the fold on a newspaper story. Everybody's watching what it's going to be like for everybody to go back to the classroom. What are you and your peers and you and your family members, you and your high school administrators conversations all about in making this adjustment for the fall? It's not far off. Yeah, yeah. It's in almost, it's in barely more than a month, actually. 
Yeah, I mean, coming back to school, I don't know, this summer felt quite short, probably because a lot of it was just recovering from the past school year. And also because school starting earlier this year, at least, I think, for uh, Irvine Unified School District. But I think most people are looking forward to going back and getting into a somewhat more kind of normal rhythm. I think a lot of teachers are tired of the Zoom box communication and just like students too, the fatigue, the Zoom fatigue is very real. Um, Of course, there are concerns over like um, safety, of course, and kind of how kids are going to adjust, especially with like those students who maybe, you know, the the learning gap that came because of the pandemic, um, the, the kind of digital divide, how that affected like certain students struggling a lot more and falling behind in their learning and how that's going to play out in the classroom. I think that's kind of one thought that teachers are considering. But overall, I mean, I guess we'll see how it goes. Uh, I'm for one, I'm glad that I'm going back to school. I think with the Zoom and the online learning, I I, I don't, I, it, was in, it was an interesting experiment, of course, but I do think there are elements of, of in-person learning that just can't be replicated online. Um, so yes, this is another transition of sorts, I, I suppose. Um, and, you know, with transitions, you kind of just have to go with them and adjust yourself as it goes, so. Well, I'm just tempted to bring up, to dangle out there on your behalf that I think we've learned some lessons from the returning to the next season. Look at the professional athletes, the NBA players, the mm-hmm. soccer players, and all internationally, that there were a lot more injuries that they didn't come back, you know, fully refreshed. And you talked about that it's been a little exhausting. The summer seems pretty short. So uh, just remind every other person that, hey, the elite athletes had some problems entering too quickly into their, their next brand new season. So uh, yeah. lighten up on high school kids, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, junior year is, is tough for everybody, but you know, mentally preparing for that. Um, I, I think, yeah, I just, I hope the transition overall will be okay. Um, well, we are all in your corner. Use us all abundantly for that. Well, Ania, I thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a pleasure. Good luck with returning safely to campus this fall, okay? Yes, thank you so much. It was great talking with you and everybody listening. And I wish you all a healthy and safe transition as well. And yeah. My guest was... Ania Shen, University High School, soon to be junior, returning class in the fall of this 2021. We're recording this on July 16th. Thanks again, Ania. Thank you. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, Shane Caulfield, UCI Earth System Scientist, PhD, doctoral candidate, returns to bring his latest research on these heady fires and all of the complications. And we'll hear another installment of Inside the 45th. And if you later wish to contribute as a constituent of the 45th Congressional District, please email me at cshamba at kuci.org. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you.